0: Hello, my name is Mark Searby, and I'm a film critic, broadcaster, and author of Al Pacino, the movies behind the man. Thanks for clicking play on episode 11 of All About Al, the Pacino podcast. As this episode is being released around Valentine's Day, I thought I'd take a look at one of the romance movies in the Al Pacino filmography. Frankie and Johnny was originally a Broadway play written by Terence McNally. He adapted it for the screen. Directed by Gary Marshall, it saw the re-teaming of Al Pacino and Michelle Pfeiffer after nearly 10 years. But this isn't a violent crime film. Instead, it's a rom-com about Frankie, a waitress in a diner in New York City, and Johnny, an ex-convict turned short-order cook, and their struggles to form a relationship. Released in North America on the 11th of October 1991, the film pulled in $67 million at the box office, which is not bad for a film that cost $29 million to make. For this episode, I've pulled in author Helen Cox to discuss the film. Helen's written many romance and mystery books, and I've known her for nearly two decades now, as I used to write for her, sadly now defunct, film magazine New Empress. And in fact, Helen was the one who planted the seed for me to write a book about Al Pacino. So she's got a lot to answer for and that's why i brought her into the podcast. Helen also loves Greece too, so knows a thing or two about Michelle Pfeiffer, which makes her, in my eyes at least, the perfect guest to talk about Frankie and Johnny. Just before I click play on this episode, I want to do something that I don't normally do, and that's dedicate an episode of the podcast to somebody. Sadly, last year, Helen's husband, Joe, passed away. I was lucky enough to meet him a few times, and he was the nicest, sweetest guy ever. I remember one time, when he was quite ill, he still managed to come out and see myself and Helen do a Q&A after a film screening, and he did it with a massive smile on his face as well. He was one of life's good guys and will be sorely missed. So this one's for Joe. And here it is, All About Al, The Pacino Podcast, Episode 11, with author Helen Cox on Frankie and Johnny.
1: Well, I have um, re-watched the movie, but I have not reread the Al Pacino chapter from your book on purpose, because um, there are there were some things that I was watching that I kind of naturally came to mind as questions that I might ask you, even though I know I read them, probably a lot of it in your book many yeah. years ago when I edited it, yeah. I can barely remember what I did last week, let alone a book that I edited like seven years ago, five years ago, whatever it may be, so it might be a bit of an opportunity for you to kind of jump in with your amazing Al Pacino knowledge
0: well thank you I probably will do um, yeah please I, but obviously let's go back to I'm gonna say 2015 maybe 2016 and I way. send yeah it's a long time ago that's <laughs> the thing I send you the chapter to edit on Frankie and Johnny yes. and at the same sort of rough time I'm reading your first book, yes, which I then yeah, which I then come to you and say, you realise this is like Frankie and Johnny, and you go, I've never seen Frankie and Johnny <laughs> until after. Like, <laughs> how how did that happen? Like, how do you write a book that's kind of like Frankie and Johnny, but not obviously? You know, you've got that mystery. I no, mean,
1: it's really like it. Um, I think that Gary Marshall sent his spirit out on me when I was writing. <laughs> that was that's the only theory I have but not having seen the movie and written a book that is there are obviously like you say just a few kind of deviations it's not like it's exactly the same story but it's extremely reminiscent put yeah. pretty politely um so that was a fun time to find out that uh there was a, a movie that was very similar to the book that I'd written that I'd never even seen
0: yeah. So I'm and... thinking,
1: you know, Gary Marshall was a very, very powerful character. So I just think that he probably did that just for fun. It's a <laughs> person that him and Penny Marshall would get up to just for giggles. So yeah. I think that's
0: probably what happened. The thing is, as well, is obviously I know, having read that book and having known you for so many years, that you love New York and you yes. love everything that goes with it. So mm. when you finally got around to watching Frankie and Johnny, was it what you were expecting? Um
1: It was much better than what I was expecting, and I don't say that in a sort of uh, ill-meaning way, it's just that romantic drama comedies are quite a difficult balancing act from both a writing point of view and a direction point of view when you come to movies. It's quite talky, Um, you've also got to find a way of building chemistry between the characters. and I didn't expect it to be terrible, but I just know that that's a tough thing for a director and a cast to do. Um, So I was really pleasantly surprised by so many elements of the movie. In retrospect, and having seen a lot of Gary Marshall films over the years, I shouldn't have been so surprised <laughs> because he was one of those directors who... He understood that what was funny and sweet and interesting about these kind of situations was the idiosyncrasies of the characters. The characters, including all the supporting cast, none of them are just kind of like accountants, you know, they're all kind of interesting, quirky, strange-looking sometimes people. Um you know, you got um Hector Eliz- Elizondo in there, which who appeared in all of Gary Marshall's movies doing his, uh, you know, usual nice guy, but runs the show kind of thing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Just, you know, as he has done in several of the movies and, um, and he's wonderful to always watch, especially in a, you know, in a Gary Marshall movie, because you can just tell that he's having fun. And that, you know, as a result, people around him are having fun. So I shouldn't have been so surprised because there was somebody behind it that did understand how to bring characters like this to life. But um, I thought, considering the material, some of which is quite dark, you've got uh, somebody who's coming out of prison, you know, Al Pacino's character's coming out of prison, which I think he takes on the chin extremely well, that whole experience, <laughs> you know, he's, he's taking that really on the chin, he's just, he's out, he's gonna do his best, he's gonna, you know, build his new life. And then you've got Michelle, Pfeiffer's character who has been through, um, you know, betrayal in a relationship and abuse in a relationship. She can't have kids. There's just like, there's quite a lot going on there that's quite dark, but it has a very light touch to it, which is quite Gary Marshall esque, of course.
0: The thing is, as well, is when this movie is about to come out and they announce the casting and people go, it's Al Pacino reuniting with Michelle Pfeiffer, maybe a lot of people will turn around and go, it's Scarface Part Two. But in, oh, yes, uh, th- that's the thing. But it's not, as you say. There's a lot of playfulness in this movie between them two that they didn't get to do in Scarface. You see, there's a couple of moments in Scarface where you can see them having a really good time together, but the rest of it, obviously, that's not what that movie is about. But this is so for the large portion of it, I think it's a lot of fun,
1: don't you? Definitely. I just think it's one of those films where the characters are all demonstrating their relationships. You know, they're demonstrating... That they know each other well through their actions, through their reactions to each other, they are also having a joke with each other a lot of the time. You know, they're 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 actually interacting with each other in a kind of jolly way, even when there's something a bit difficult happening in the shot. So yeah, definitely, there's a there's a there's a, there's a lightness there that that lifts the whole piece. I think. Yeah,
0: I I completely agree with you, and I think the fact that because Pacino and Pfeiffer had not had much interaction on Scarface when they got back together again and were working this out I I note that the fact that they sat down they had a meal together and she just started asking him questions kind of like what her character does in the movie so she asked him what his favorite color was what his favorite food was what his favorite time of the year is now you're not going to ask those questions when making Scarface but you're going to ask those questions when making Frankie and Johnny
1: yeah it's interesting that you you've you know you've obviously got the background information from writing the book and doing your research and I find that fascinating because I did wonder you know with them having done a a film that is really very different together and then coming back together to do this one what kind of relationship did they have do you know when going into this movie was it just they didn't really know each other that well they just they hadn't had much interaction on Scarface and then they came to this as pretty much meeting each other properly for the first time where they're going to have in-depth conversations.
0: Yeah, I think that's about it, really. As I said, they had they had their working relationship on Scarface, but that's a different movie. That's that's mm-hmm. a different Pacino. Whereas this one, they needed to get to know each other because they right. were in a loving relationship. Whereas Scarface is not a loving relationship at any point, whereas with this one. So I think that's why she was pestering in with questions all the time. You know, Was it,
1: that two-way, do you know? Did he also try and get to know her better? or
0: No, not really, because not he replied really. back to her to say, what are you trying to be, Michelle, a talk show host? Oh, wow. <laughs> but, you know, but that's the thing is that Pacino... <laughs> well, don't hold back. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But he is quite a private person. That's the oh. thing. We don't know his favourite colour. We don't know his favourite food. Well, I think we can all assume it's pasta based on the fact that he loves pastor and I, I know from having interviewed loads and loads of other people that he would take the cast and crew out for italian meals mm. uh, i mean what's his favorite time of year you know look this is not tinder at all um no it's, I, it's an interesting
1: thing i wonder also because a lot of, i remember a lot of the book you talked a lot about his sort of method acting approach and i wonder if he really felt like what his favorite color was was relevant you know what I mean, In term, rather than the character themselves, if he thought, although it's nice that you're trying to get to know me, like, we're not playing ourselves, we're playing we're playing these characters.
0: Do you think then that it was possibly Michelle Pfeiffer that was going deeper into the character early on, compared to Pacino, who normally would do, he mm-hmm. would spend a long time, but I think maybe he looked at this and just thought, this is a sweet movie, yeah. I don't need to find the character so much. I know, obviously, he, he spent quite a time um, learning how to cook and in diners as well. But, you know, it's not its not a hard performance for Pacino.
1: No, it's not. But I think also that dynamic that you've just described where perhaps she's going into the character deeper earlier and he's not per se, there may be not method acting, but method in his madness because he does need to bring that light touch. She's the one throughout the whole runtime you know when he tells her he loves her she reacts as though he's told her that he's going to murder her she's like really distraught about this and she won't answer his calls and she won't go into work and it's extremely distressing which is a very sad thing a character being extremely distressed because someone is telling them that they love them and want to marry them. And Nathan Lane says something, she says, he says, what's the problem? She says, he loves me, wants to marry me. And he says like, oh, that bastard, you know, like how could he sort of thing. <laughs> he says something along those lines and you think, you know, they're playing it for laughs, but she is deep in trauma here. She's, she is in a place where this is the most traumatic thing that has happened to her in about three years in her life. That this person's come along and is th- the threat of intimacy is there. She can't deal with it. Whereas Al Pacino's character, I mean, he needs to be able to keep it way lighter than that. She's the one who's got to go really dark, and he's the one who's got to be the contrast and keep it, you know, bobbling along. So, if I don't know how long he prepares for the for the role, apart from as you say, going in and learning how to cook, and you can tell. the way he's acting and the way he's moving around the kitchen he knows his way around he knows what he's doing um but i do think potentially um he he did that to to keep things lighter in contrast to her performance and neither those are bad things they make it work they work it works very well
0: together but this is the first time where we see him have a have fun with a character, I think.
1: I think that was one of the most surprising things about the movie for me, because I knew what he'd done before that. You know, I'd seen those movies. It was all very serious, all very straight-faced. Um, and in this movie, you know, <laughs> he's dancing around in the, in the middle of a circle. He's he's making all these ridiculous noise in the kitchen, helping people put on headbands and um, just generally being... Getting to, getting to enjoy himself on screen a little bit in a way that I certainly don't remember seeing, you know, when I've watched those early movies, anywhere near as much, if ever,
0: really. Do you think on some level that, much like some of the other movies he he's made after Frankie and Johnny, that he started to steal the movie away from the headliner? Because to me, while... I'm coming from a Pacino side of it. You watch this movie, and for a large part of it, I think Michelle Pfeiffer is the headline here. But mm-hmm. then there's like this switch that happens, kind of like with Devil's Advocate. You look mm. at Devil's Advocate and you go, it's yeah. a Keanu Reeves movie.
1: Keanu. He didn't know,
0: did he? He didn't know. <laughs> he didn't exactly. know who the star was. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, <laughs> there's this told him. nobody told him, listen, don't act with Pacino because what's going to happen is I know you're number one on the call sheet, but actually, it's not going to work in the film. But I wonder if that's the case here. Like, is that what you felt when you were watching it? I actually feel um, that enough
1: focus is kept on Michelle Pfeiffer's character. A lot of the shots are from her point of view. In fact, we rarely, I'm not sure if we do. I didn't. wasn't actually counting them, but I don't know if we really do see a shot from his point of view, even when he's like, please, uh, he says something like, uh, open your robe or when she's getting ready for bed and she doesn't want to, but even the shot where she opens her robe, we don't see from his point of view or see any nudity. We see that shot from the side as though we're watching the pair of them and the rest of the shots that we see are mostly from what we would imagine to be her perspective, you know, looking over at him in the diner or looking out at a scene that's happening, or we, we've got the camera on her and her friends. So directorially speaking, I think he's... Gary Marshall's working extremely hard to make sure that doesn't happen. And i I if it was if it does happen at any point, I really don't think that Pacino is trying to do that. I actually feel like his performance for all its um extravagance in some respect, is quite uh, low key uh, in a sort of it's sort of understated in a very interesting way such as when he's coming out of prison and and the guards are like, oh, I'm going to miss you Western Omelette. And he's like, I'll send you the recipe. You know, it's like really light. It's just very, very breezy. um Someone else could have really hammed that line up or, you know, made a, a literal meal <laughs> of that line, but he just, it's just all very quick. It's very light. It's very understated. And uh, yes, he's got the extravagant moments and we do see a much, I would say, jollier version of, of, of his character on the screen, but, um, for me, I think that the, he has to work hard to do it, but they managed to keep the focus just enough on her that I think she remains the central character. But he is up there with her without a doubt. You know, it feels very even to me.
0: It's interesting you say there that he's working really hard because Pacino's idea of. His performance of Johnny. I think was... Gary
1: Marshall's working really hard. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> he, Gary Marshall's like, I got Pacino here, <laughs> so Michelle. I can just imagine him in his accent. You know, Gary Marshall's accent. Yeah. Michelle, we've got to make sure that people know this movie is about you.
0: <laughs> well, I guess going going back to what you were saying is that with Pacino, yes, he's there, level Pegging but actually, he's he's more reserved. And the Pacino's idea of Johnny was to make him physically anonymous mm. and I guess you could see that you know he, mm. he is who he is as as somebody who's just come out and he's found himself when he's behind that grill he's having a whale of a time yeah. that's his area that's his expertise take that away from him and we don't see anything else we don't see that extravagance which we would normally get with a Pacino performance we get as he says, physically anonymous, this man walks through New York streets and nobody would notice, I think.
1: Yeah, I think that's the idea. I mean, even the sort of first 15 minutes where um, it seems Gary Marshall in that era really did like having prostitutes in his movie. And he's, he's you know, he's he's walking down the street in New York and it's a particular time of night, it's a particular street, so there are prostitutes there. Um and he does take one home but to spoon with to lie with so again we don't see from his point of view it's a shot where we're looking at both people in the scene we're not looking over at the prostitute from his point of view or anything like that but we see them lying on the bed together and it, and that is just all very quiet it's all very low-key He sat watching some quiz show at some point and kind of um, berates the woman on TV for not knowing the answer to a question. I think it's about butterflies. Um, But it's all very low key life, like what you'd expect any normal person to be doing in New York City, especially one who'd just sort of come out of prison, you know, given the, the sort of intimacy that he wants to share with the prostitute, but it's intimacy, not sex. That is the whole point of that scene. You know, and it's put there very early to say that he does have a very um, clear need for closeness, but not necessarily uh, for sex, like people stereotype people who've been in prison to think that that's all that they can think about. And that's all that they um, want when they get out of, of prison. And that's showing us a different perspective on that narrative. And it's one of the many, many little things about this movie that make it very, very interesting.
0: The thing is, with certain scenes in this movie and the way that Johnny is pining for Frankie reminds me a lot of certain scenes in Carlito's way. You know, I think about the scene where um, Pacino's stood the other side of the door and Penelope Ann Miller's got the chain on the door and he's reaching through and she won't unlock it. And she walks into the bathroom and drops the robe. And, you know, he just he he just can't get there. Just can't get there. And I think there is some similat- some similarity between what happens in there and what happens in this one.
1: Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that he's selecting characters to play who are male, who have this struggle with intimacy and vulnerability. Um, in some respects, in Frankie and Johnny, the reason why it's such an interesting dynamic is because, very traditionally speaking, and I'm not saying that I think this is the way... Um, men and women should be ha- should be acting but traditionally you would expect the man to be very reserved about his feelings and the woman to be gushing and telling her friends that she loves him and et, cetera, et cetera. that's the traditional thing that we would see in movies in in Frankie and Johnny um he's you know I must tell you that I love you and I think we should get married and I think we should have kids and he's just gushing all, all of this vulnerability and intimacy out and she's the one who's like are you insane? uh no like step back like she's really really uncomfortable with it um and I just can't commend that highly enough because not all Um, Not all men are very reserved with their, you know, intimacy and not all women are gushy. You know, it's good to see those roles reverse and see different models of, you know, people in the world and how they deal with this issue. And same thing in, you know, Carlito's way. It's just another representation of how people and in this case in particular, he's playing a man. So how men manage intimacy, manage vulnerability in their lives. It's, you
0: know, it's a good thing to explore. We're, we're talking about a movie that was made in 1991. I know. I don't want to speak for the whole male population here, but in 1991, I think most men were not talking about feelings or no. sex unless it was sort of laddie bloke banter, you know, stuff like that. They weren't doing what Pacino's character Johnny does in this movie. So mm-hmm. do you think Pacino taking on this role and having this character who's openly talking about these feelings is quite a brave move.
1: It is, but I think there's a couple of things going on. You know, his previous roles were extremely fixed in a sort of more toxic masculinity landscape. And so knowing from the book that you've written, knowing that Pacino likes to challenge himself, he will have thought this is a sweet movie but he may also have been attracted to the fact that this was a completely different model of a man to explore in his acting and show a completely different side to himself as an actor um i, I like to think too that he did think about the fact that this could help people seeing um you know a man on screen expressing these his his feelings and experiences without any compunction, without any shame, you know, he tells her lots and lots of very intimate details. He has kids, he couldn't get out of the car when he went to see them, he felt he'd let them down. I mean, many, you know, there's a reason why in the Western world, male suicide rate is so very high. And it is because of exactly what you're describing our generation before. I hope that the next generation have got this sussed, but our generation before, you know, you would not, allowed to show your feelings if you're a man Um, so for a man to be on screen talking about how he feels he's left his, his kids down and that showing that vulnerability opening up to somebody about the things that he hasn't got right and he wants to fix but doesn't know how being able to ask somebody rather than having to be the fixer having to be the soldier having to be the savior it's very, very important and is another reason why this movie deserves a lot more credit than it's probably had over the years.
0: Can we talk about the VCR?
1: Yes, we can. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: there's, another,
1: there's another woman who is after my own heart.
0: Yeah, what so, she wants
1: the a VCR. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the thing is with the VCR, it is a continuous joke all the way through the movie that she's bought this vcr and she can't get it plugged in she doesn't know how it's working and she brings her friend tim in and he doesn't know as well (laughs) and whatever else i mean it's an ongoing joke and it's kind of funny but realistically if we look at that properly that's a metaphor for her life isn't it
1: yeah absolutely um you know what you're going to do with the vcr she talks about you know you, you, you rent a movie you buy you buy pizza or you order pizza you know that's dinner and a movie um and so she's you know she's escaping from real life by trying to squash herself into this apartment with the vcr and the and the pizza etc um and it's obvious that she would rather engage with um a movie than engage with anyone else uh it's her putting herself in a little cocoon it's also a thing where she's you know saving up for it it's another kind of subtle hint about her monetary status and how people who've had um a lot of relationships that haven't worked out or people who've had relationships who where things were going great for a for a while and then you break up and all of a sudden you realize that financially this has hit you hard as well which is really where she's at in the movie she's had these breakups and every single time she had a breakup she's somehow get the got the financial raw end of the deal so it's it's like something for her this vcr to help her escape what's going on in reality um but the the john the johnny character is just unwilling to allow her to scurry down that rabbit hole
0: <laughs> it's almost like once you get that VCR plugged in, just be delicate when you press play on it.
1: Hey, yeah, we've all seen Videodrome. That's what I'm saying.
0: <laughs> That's very true. Oh, my goodness. What a, what a leap there, Frankie and Johnny, to Videodrome.
1: Hey, I spent this whole time going to Michelle Pfeiffer's bowling, and she's running around with someone called Johnny. This is Just Grease too, isn't it? What's
0: going on? <laughs> well, Interesting, you mentioned Greece too, there, because I know you're a <laughs> when massive When do I never? <laughs> exactly. I know you're a massive fan. I know no. you're one of those people who, you know, <laughs> will happily wax lyrical for hours on it. And that does lead me on to the next question. Is that you have watched in your career as a writer and also working as a film critic and running a film magazine and writing books on film as well. You've watched a lot of romantic comedies.
1: Oh, yes. I, think,
0: I mean, you have discussed some of them over time. I just want to know where Frankie and Johnny fits in terms of, it. you know, is it one of the better rom-coms? Is it just a middling piece and we're elevating it because we're talking about Pfeiffer and Pacino? Like, where does this sit in the genre?
1: Um, I mean, essentially, I think it is miles ahead of its time. And a lot of the rom-coms that we saw in the noughties and in the tens actually really rode back a lot on the, the g- good stuff that was laid down in this particular rom-com i mean doesn't mean i won't watch it but the ugly truth with Catherine heigl has got some really problematic issues <laughs> in that movie um and that's sort of the thing that i'm thinking about when i think about you know what are we doing in romantic comedies what are we trying to What are we trying to do with them? Yes, they're supposed to be romantic. Yes, they're supposed to be funny. But are we really just going to show the same reluctant guy and the same overzealous woman in every single version of it? You know, there are Saturday Night Night Live sketches made about such cliches. And it's so weird that something made in 1991 is in many ways far more diverse. You know, we've got gay couples, and not just stereotypical gay couple. We've got somebody. Who, we've got people who are actually people. They're not just there to be her best friend. They may be her best friend, but that's not the only reason they exist in the story. Um, there's also, a, you know, a talk of just vague mention of AIDS and things like this. There's just a lot of representation going on in this story, and I feel if anything, things have got wider and narrower as we've gone down the years, it's starting to turn again, which is really wonderful, especially with people like Netflix putting out things with um, a diverse cast, you know, they can put them out straight to their own channel, it will get seen by millions of people, um, something like To All The Boys I've Loved Before, you know, really wonderful, lovely, albeit uh, more teen, teen-oriented, really lovely romantic comedy. And, um, it's refreshing to see that the tide is sort of turning back that way because I feel there was a really unfortunate period not all (laughs) rom-coms can I just say but there was just a little bit of a tide there that, that didn't really it's not aged well yeah anybody knows what he's just not that into you it's actually about I would love you to write to me and tell me
0: That's a challenge and a
1: half. Just going to put that right there.
0: That's a challenge and a half, Helen, that is.
1: (laughs) I'm just saying I've watched it a few times. I'm still a bit
0: clueless. Right. Um. (laughs) One thing to throw at you is that when the film came out, it didn't have great critical reviews. And a lot of people actually criticised it, saying that Pacino and Pfeiffer were too pretty to play those types of characters. God forbid. Yeah I, I know like you know why can't pretty How people How horrible
1: work? for you to have to look at Michelle Pfeiffer for an opportunity <laughs> for 2 hours I'm so sorry But why it
0: can't hard. Yeah why can't pretty people work in a diner
1: like they, they work really hard well lots of pretty people do work in diners hmm. just cuz you that's the only job you can get does not mean that you're ugly yeah. um you know it's uh, I I just maybe there's always been a little bit of a tide against romantic comedies because you know they're for women which is not a good thing in 1991 you don't want to be making things for women because you know really should be making things for men they're the people you want to impress um and it's been that way from it's not just 1991 it's been that way for many hundreds of years and it's, oh, we're getting there but it's it's still got ways to go on that so uh, one of it will just be plain and sheer like sexism and <laughs> yeah. um, the other thing is um why are they commenting on that rather than the performances of the people in front of them. That's my question to them. Are they unaware of the fact that actors get paid to be pretty and that's why they're pretty. Yeah. They, they know that's, their, that's part of their job description and how many actors and actresses have talked about the extreme regime they've had to go to to fulfill particular roles. Um, I just, it seems a very odd thing to get upset about yeah. When you go to a movie to watch something, it, it's like, well, oh no, Ryan Gosling's in it and he's really handsome. That's just unrealistic. So, it's okay, it's unrealistic that he'd, you know, be some rando carpenter in the middle of nowhere and fall in love with Rachel McCann. It's like, yeah, but I mean, it's a movie.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. My, just... my pet peeve is in movies is where they try and make beautiful people ugly.
1: I mean, they do try that a bit with Michelle Pfeiffer, but they fail. Exactly. Michelle Pfeiffer. They try it really hard. They kind of don't really do her hair, you know, very well. And and she and she, she has this scene on the bus where she's looking at her reflection in the mirror, in the window. She's obviously meant to look old and haggard. She does not. She's just crying a little bit. <laughs> and you're like, oh, it's tough. It's tough being, you know, pretty.
0: <laughs> it's <laughs> tough it's being not- that pretty and yeah. yet men- not meant to be that pretty. And you go, well, if I, I just- woke up, in the morning not me personally but you know if somebody woke up in the morning looking like that i think we'd all most of us would be overjoyed
1: yeah Also, what annoys me about these comments is if they cast people who were by conventional terms ugly, they would be saying they're not convincing as a leading man or lady. So, you know, you can't win. Um, And I just think that is the oddest thing for a critic to pick up on. It's unrealistic that somebody as beautiful as Michelle Pfeiffer be working in a diner. Hmm, interesting. I don't know where you're getting that from. (laughs) (laughs) And of all the things to comment on about this movie, that's what they picked. I mean, they were really looking for something with it being a rom-com they were really looking for something to not like it for For
0: yeah i I, the thing is going back to obviously the question is what why isn't you know where does this fit in terms of rom-coms for you i mean i think this is always overlooked when we talk about pacino movies always Mm. because it's a rom-com and you don't expect to see al pacino in a rom-com you know it's not the type of thing that most people who are going to see an al pacino movie want to see. And yet we come out of this movie, I think most of us will, we'll come out of this movie going, that was lovely. That was a really sweet movie. And the underlying message is that there is somebody out there for everyone.
1: Yeah, that there is somebody out there for everyone. But also um you get to them by communicating. You get to them by sharing of yourself rather than hiding yourself away and hoping that the world will go away. You get to them through connection rather than disconnection. And it doesn't surprise me that it is overlooked in, you know, his repertoire because of it being a romantic comedy. And, you know, it's a shame because, like I say, in terms of where this sits in romantic comedies as a whole, it is way ahead of its time in what it's doing here. All the characters. So many romances, the characters don't really talk to each other. And that is a huge narrative problem. Um, so How can they get to like each other if they don't even communicate with each other for the vast majority of the screenplay? And this is a, a thing that you find in many, many rom-coms that they don't really talk to each other that much. They maybe have two scenes, three scenes together and all of a sudden they have these massive feelings. Um, so it's a very communicative film. And it sets itself apart both on a structural level for that reason and on the message that it, that it brings and the, the representation that it brings. It's a real shame if this movie isn't, you know, sort of uplifted in its status a little bit and seen more as the cult classic that it is. Because a lot of present day directors and actors could learn a lot about making romantic comedies, but just making films in general by watching Performances of the central couple and the direction around it.
0: Talking about watching the performances of the central couple, one of them, Al Pacino. Let me finish with this question for you then, Helen. What's your favorite Al Pacino movie?
1: Oh my God. Can I not just say Frankie and Johnny?
0: You can if you want.
1: <laughs> it's very that is like asking almost like asking someone what their favorite movie is. Um, because The issue is that he has so many interesting performances. Like you mentioned Devil's Advocate there. And I remember going to see it at the cinema and just thinking, this is a weird movie, but he is so good. I was talking about Al Pacino. Sorry, Keanu. He is so good in this movie. And that's what I feel when I watch an Al Pacino movie. It's like, it is good. The movies are good. But it's almost more about how good he is uh, that that makes it your favourite. The stuff that's going on around him... And there was something just really incredible about watching him play the devil. So I'm just, I'm going to say, I do, I think Frankie and Johnny is probably going to be my favourite, but as just another aside, people might say that the movie itself has its flaws and I can't deny that, but I do think his performance in that movie, The Devil's Advocate is, I don't know, I think people overlook it a little bit because of his other accolades and I think something quite special and highly entertaining about it. <laughs> me! You're like, you chose that one of all of his movies? You chose that one with The Godfather?
0: Helen Cox talking to me about Frankie and Johnny. I thought that was a really fun chat, especially when we dug into how some critics said that Pacino and Pfeiffer were too pretty to play in the main characters which is obviously complete BS. Helen had a good response to that as well. Oh, and the chat about the VCR as well. And for anybody who's seen the film will understand why that's so important. My thanks to Helen Cox for coming on the podcast. I must briefly mention that some of the old New Empress magazine video blogs that we did back in the day are still viewable on YouTube, including one on Serpico and another on Scarecrow. So just search for New Empress magazine on YouTube. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any feedback, then please do get in touch. You can find me on X, aka Twitter, on Instagram and on Blue Sky, or you can contact me via my website, markseerby.com. If you enjoyed this episode, then please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all future episodes. Until next time.